Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, thinking red to drive success in the joint concept at DOD. We need a cultural change is basically what I'm calling for. We need to start thinking again of the threat, of the challenge. It's the White House's turn to lead on AI success. I believe the president ought to commit the country to, by the end of this decade, we will be number one in the technologies that matter. And the cyber silver lining in the coronavirus cloud. I think in a lot of ways, COVID prompted the growing up that we all were due for. It's Friday, October 22nd, 2021, the final day of Cyber Week. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The General Services Administration is adding mobility as a service offerings to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract. Kevin Gallo, the Director of Technical Account Management in the Office of Enterprise Technology Solutions at GSA, says the addition should make it easier for agencies to buy the services and for industry to sell them. Gallo says the services will be on EIS sometime in 2022. The State Department's prepping a series of multiple award contracts for IT that could be worth up to $8 billion. The contract's called Evolve. It'll cover the services on its Vanguard contract and new services Vanguard doesn't have. That contract at SAIC won in 2010 expired earlier this year. The Justice Department will use, quote, all of the legal authorities in our reach to protect whistleblowers in the department's cases against government contractors. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco says her message to witnesses is, quote, if you see something, say something. Monaco says the False Claims Act cases her office will pursue will enforce fines against contractors and grant recipients who don't report cyber incidents that compromise their networks. You can read more about all these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. Cyber Week wraps up today, but the resources live on. You can catch up on what you missed all weekend long at any time on demand at cyberscoop.us. The Chief Information Officer of the Army, Raj Iyer, says the new Army Digital Transformation Strategy lays the groundwork for the Army's piece of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. JADC-2 is the highest profile example of the joint warfighting concepts the Defense Department is working on. Greg Grant is Adjunct Senior Fellow for the Defense Program at the Center for a New American Security. He's former Senior Director of Strategy at the Defense Innovation Unit, and he's writing about joint warfighting with his colleague Paul Benfield. Greg, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You and Paul write this recently. If the DOD is going to move to joint concept-driven, threat-informed capability development, it faces a considerable challenge in that its joint concept development and experimentation process is fundamentally broken. That doesn't sound good. How did we get there and why do you come to that conclusion? Welcome, Greg. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let me let me go back to the to the national defense strategy that came out in 2018, which shifted the thinking of DOD and the way DOD approaches problems to uh, to a threat based, which was a departure from what previously existed because before that it was just, hey, let's come up with a list of the capabilities we might need and see if they, if they might work on, uh, you know, the future battlefield or how, we, you know, however we decide to use them. Um, going to a threat-based strategy is very much akin to what we had during the Cold War period in that it focuses on a specific adversary in a specific setting. And then it allows you to develop specific capabilities to, uh, that will provide you advantage against that adversary. So that's what the strategy has done. 
Now what the missing piece is a joint warfighting concept that provides the DOD, it provides the military a vision of how it will, how it DOD intends the, the joint force to fight on future battlefields. And that vision is, is critical because you need to know how the force is going to fight before you start trying to buy all the various capabilities that the force might need. Um, and again, we, you know, going back to the Cold War, we have the example of, of airland battle doctrine. And the and airland battle doctrine, was, which was originally a concept and then ultimately became doctrine, um, and it was, again, it was very focused on a specific threat, the, the threat the Soviet Union posed, posed to, uh, to NATO forces on the inter-German border. Um, now we're looking at the threat that China poses uh, to um, uh, allies, partners, and U.S. interests in the Western Pacific, as well as, uh, as, as potential threats from the Soviet Union and Europe. Um, so, so this is, again, this is just to go, go back to the, its threat base and it's looking at these specific threats. Um, the problem is, and this is what we highlight in the paper, is that uh, this is the first time DOD has tried to do this in, in almost four decades, to come up with a truly joint concept focused at the, one, focused against a specific threat, and two, focused at the high end of, of warfare. Um, and so it's it's kind of en entering uh, a, a bit of uncharted territory here, and plus it's it hasn't resourced or emphasized or provided um, provided the support to uh, you know to the to the institution or the mechanisms that that actually develop a joint concept. So DoD is kind of it's it's very much in the process of trying to rebuild that capability at the moment, and at the same time write a joint war fighting concept for the future that lays out this vision of how it will fight. And then, as, as the senior leadership has said, that will guide what types of weapon systems and capabilities and you know, force design uh, that DOD will have going forward. So it's a very critical piece. And it's essential that, that DOD gets this piece right. You and Paul make seven recommendations. We don't have time to cover all seven, but we'll link your work. Uh, at the daily scoop podcast dot uh, com in today's show notes and people can explore all seven two in particular though i want to ask you about empowering the combatant commanders to drive joint concept development we're not doing that already i imagine we're not because that's why you needed to make it a recommendation you know interestingly um as DoD has said they want joint con joint joint concept driven threat informed capability development Okay, this, again, this goes back to why this is so important. So if they're going to, it, it, the joint concept is supposed to inform capability development. And, it, and again, going back to the threat piece. So if we look at across the force, which organizations are most familiar, most knowledgeable, and have the most experience dealing with the threat? Those are the combatant commands. If, you know, it's the combatant, it's Indo-PACOM has the most familiarity with China, the way China operates on a day-to-day -day basis. And not only that, but also potential American weaknesses of how do you move logistics into that theater? What are the potential choke points for throughput of trying to move fuel and munitions and all those things that enable us to fight? And so the, the combatant commands really need to be at the leading edge of, of, of developing these, these new ways and these new ideas. Uh, again, because of their familiarity with the challenge, with the threat itself. And, 
you know, it's so back in the Cold War era, we, we you know, the entire military establishment was focused intently on 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 the Soviet Union and its new Soviet capabilities. And, you know, we, it, it, it was they lived and breathed it. Um, and and we, we we just don't do that today. Um, one, we don't have the luxury of a single, um, you know, a single great power challenger. Obviously, we have not only China, but also the Soviet Union that we have to pay attention to. Um, so we need to we we need that element of expertise um, and focus and and again it's the combatant commands that that really have that expertise and they need to be they really need to be leading this effort I believe. Uh, the other recommendation I want to ask you about quickly is increasing the competition of ideas by fostering a department uh, departmental culture of thinking red. What's thinking red mean, Greg? I, I, again, this goes back to the Cold War example I just cited. So. It was the Soviets were the, the it was the red menace, and it was you know how do we stop how do we stop this potential um, onslaught of you know this very large Warsaw Pact uh, military force? How do we stop it rampaging across the the inner German border? Um, how do we stop you know how do we defeat uh, very advanced Soviet submarines? Um, you know how do we find ways to penetrate Soviet air defenses? You know. Uh, so it was it, the whole, the entire military establishment was focused on solving these problems, um, and so we, we and, and they th- they thought again uh, this, as, as I put it, they were thinking red all the time. They were thinking about okay, what's the adversary developing, or what are they potentially, what ways of war fighting are they developing that we need to counter, and are our countermeasures good enough? And how do we develop capabilities that will provide us an advantage? How do we leap ahead? How do we, you know, how do we put them uh, on the horns of a dilemma? And, and this, it was, it was the way the entire military establishment thought back then. And we, and we just need to, we need to get back there. It's, a, it's essential that we need to have, we need a cultural change is basically what I'm calling for. We need to start thinking again of the threat, of the challenge, and thinking of ways, you know, it's not just, it's not just ways of war fighting. It's you know the acquisition system. It's the organization. It's a very much a cultural change of thinking about that adversary every day and and developing ways to counter that adversary. Greg Grant of the Center for a New American Security, writing with his colleague Paul Banfield. Thanks very much for joining me today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate the time. You can find a link to that work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The head of the Defense Innovation Unit, Michael Brown, is calling for a, quote, national statement on leadership in technologies like microelectronics, quantum computing, and artificial intelligence. Brown says that statement will require resources to back it up. Bob Work is former Deputy Secretary of Defense and former co-chair of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Bob, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you think uh, Mike Brown means, or what do you think of an appropriate national statement is, about maintaining leadership in artificial intelligence. Welcome, Bob. It's great to be here, Francis. As the National Security Commission on AI said, we are in a knockdown, drag out competition for technological primacy uh, with the People's Republic of China. China is a much different competitor because they have the technological wherewithal to hang with us step for step. Whether or not they're a fast follower or a leader, They are a formidable competitor. And this technological competition is going to be central for the United States in the 21st century 
because it will depend, it will, both on our economic uh, and military uh, competitiveness. So it's really, really important. And I think what Mike has said, because he has been working out on the West Coast, he sees all of the investment the Chinese are making in U.S. technology companies, and he's saying, look, you know, we need to have a national commitment, we're going to win this. And I agree with him, 100%. You know, the space race in the Cold War was more a matter of national prestige than it was some existential competition. And this particular technological competition is much different because, as I said, it, it will make a big difference on how we fare both technologi- I mean, economically and militarily. So I believe it deserves something from the president himself. Just like he said, look, we're, by the end of this decade, we're going to go to the moon. And I believe the president ought to commit the country to, by the end of this decade, we will be number one in the technologies that matter, such as artificial intelligence, quantum science, biotechnology, 5G. It's important for our country. It's important for our citizens. And we're going to be number one in these areas. And I think it would be something galvanizing the country to respond to this challenge. When President Kennedy said we're going to go to the moon, that was very quantifiable. Either we were on the moon by the end of the decade or we weren't. We knew what victory looked like. What does victory look like? Is there such a thing in the kinds of sciences that you just laid out? Is there a way to say we got there or we know we didn't get there? I think there is a way to uh, quantify it. And we've talked about this before, Francis. This technological competition is a values competition between authoritarian powers and democratic powers. All of these technologies will be proliferated around the world in technology platforms. And make no mistake that technology platforms will reflect the values of the governments that deploy them. So we already know how the Chinese think about AI and how they might use it. They use it for population surveillance. They use it for suppression of minorities. They use it to trample civil liberties and civil rights and personal privacy. These are not values that uh, the United States wants. And at the end of 2030, if most of the technological platforms that have been proliferated around the world are coming from authoritarian regimes and not democratic regimes, I would say we will have lost. Mm-hmm. Because we don't want to live in that world where democratic values are simply not considered as part of the technological progress of the world. We chatted a little bit before we went on the air, and you refreshed my memory that the National Commission. Uh, findings were that we're ahead in three important areas regarding artificial intelligence and the Chinese are ahead in three areas. Is there such a thing as a partial victory or do we have to win all six by 2030 in order to consider ourselves victorious? No, I don't think we need to do all six. What you're referring to is the National Security Commission on AI said, look, technology isn't a singular technology. It is a stack of technologies. And it includes hardware. It includes algorithms. It includes uh, applications. It includes talent, people. It includes data. 
and it includes integrating all of those six. So, as you said, we tried... It, well, first of all, this is not like the Cold War where you could fly a satellite over the Soviet Union, count the number of missile silos in the ground and say, hey, they have 1,500 missiles. You know, you, we don't have that type of uh, intelligence on saying who is ahead. So we were very conservative and very cautious in the way we said this. We said, look, we believe the United States is ahead in hardware, and we had very good reasons on why we made that conclusion. We think we're ahead in algorithms, although it's really a close race. And we think we're ahead in talent because the world's talent still wants to come to the United States. And the Chinese are ahead in data, in uh, applications, and in integration. Not because they're better than in, in integration than we are, but because they have a national plan, which is what Mike Brown was saying. Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, we need somebody to say, we're going to win this competition. And I expect the government to get behind me, and we're going to go. So we judged that because of the three that we were ahead in, hardware, algorithms, and talent, we had a slight overall lead in the competition. Now, I don't think that we have to say we have to lead all six to make sure that we're number one. But the one thing I said, there's two that I would say right now you have to win. And that's talent. You know, we have to grow homegrown talent. We have to attract talent from around the world because talent really is the kind of beating heart, the engine of uh, technological innovation. And then integration. You have to actually have a plan. And the Chinese, as I said, have a national plan to become the world's number one technological power. So um, if in 2030... Uh, you know, we can say, look, without question, we have the best talent in the world, and we still hold our lead in algorithms, or even if it's close, uh, I think we'll be good. The applications is the place that I worry about, because that's how you'll deploy these applications. Just like we went through with Huawei, we were afraid that the Huawei technology would take data and push it back to China. Uh, without the people who were using the uh, platform even being witting about it. So, you know, in a technological competition, you may not even know who's ahead until it happens. Mm -hmm. Like, God forbid there was a war, and we suddenly find ourselves fighting off swarms of intelligent UAVs. Um, and we said, wow, we did not realize they would have it. And it's like the Chinese most recent uh, demonstration of their global, what has been called a fractional orbital bombardment system. In my view, that's what losing technological superiority is like. You're getting surprised. Uh, and then you're in a tail chase. How do we, how do we respond to this? So the last thing I would like to see is between now and 2030, the Chinese roll out something every six months and our intelligence community is surprised. And, you know, we're all looking at each other saying, how will we respond? You know, that to me is definitely would definitely be indicating that we are losing the competition. I have a bunch more questions for you, especially about how we maintain that uh, lead and win in talent integration. Can you come back on Monday's program and we can continue that conversation, Bob? I would love that if you're available. 
Sure, I'd be happy to, Francis. Okay, Bob, that's great. You can find a link to the National Security Commission on AI's work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. I'll continue that conversation with Bob Work on Monday's show. That Daily Scoop Podcast debuts Monday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Today's the final day of Cyber Week. One of this week's events featured the Chief Information Security Officer of the Energy Department, Greg Sisson, and Merritt Baer of Amazon Web Services. She's former Senior Cybersecurity Counsel at the Department of Homeland Security and former Lead Cyber Advisor at the Federal Communications Commission. Greg told my colleague from CyberScoop, Jeff Stone, how energy approaches modernizing its cyber infrastructure. I think a lot of us across the, uh, across the public sector probably had uh, different ideas about what we were going to modernize in and what we were going to focus on. Um, and then with the executive order, that, that probably shifted a little bit. Um, but certainly, uh, the executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity is, is serving as, a, uh, as an enabler uh, to get us to start thinking about things a little bit differently. I don't know that we've shifted a great deal, but certainly we are thinking about things differently as we look towards a zero-trust uh, architecture, um, you know, as defined in, in the executive order. So I think really um, we're looking at, we're taking a look back a little bit uh, to make sure that what we've invested in, that we can carry that forward uh, already, making sure that that we that we're aligned, that we that the investments that we've made currently are lined up and are preparing us uh, to move forward, uh, you know, with the executive order requirements. So I think that's really what we're doing now is really just making sure that we have conditions set to move forward. Um, but again, you know, we're really looking at the way that we that we balance risk and compliance as well as we do that. Um, but from a pure modernization perspective, I think um, we're really just also looking at the way that we do risk management, uh, you know, quantitative versus qualitative. Uh, so we've made some investments in the, you know, in the way we're doing that and really trying to shift more to quantitative risk management. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know that I have a lot to say about, you know, big modernization efforts. It's really about laying the groundwork, making sure that conditions are set to move towards zero trust, making sure that, uh, that we balance compliance and risk, and then looking at the way we do risk management. Does that does that make sense with your thinking, Merritt? I, I know I know it's a, a broad question, but but uh, walk us through your reaction to that. Yeah, I mean, um, look, I uh, so I, I came from U.S. government when I went to Amazon, and I can empathize with some of the kind of um, you know good fights that you're out there fighting. I think that, um, you know, one of the ways that executive orders and other, um, you know, even the memo on ransomware defense um, can be a mobilizer in the sense that like, at least from my perspective, when you get to a more mature posture where you are leveraging things like cloud, then you're implementing your governance in the form of policies. You're doing infrastructure as code, you're doing security as code. And so while zero trust is a term that like, gets batted around a lot, often without a real definition. I think a lot of this is the eat your vegetables that we know we need to do. And part of that actually is easier when you do, quote unquote, modernize, right? When you move into this new era where you're embracing immutable and ephemeral architectures, you can come back to a known good state. 
implementing something like zero trust when you're still worried about the rogue server under someone's desk is a whole different job, you know, and I think really allowing enterprises to grow up. Um, and I guess I include, uh, you know, things, uh, governmental entities into enterprise scale transformations in this sense, but allowing them to kind of mature in a way that then um, enables them to do that kind of higher order reasoning about the security of their networks to know affirmatively where their identity store is and how they are um, permissioning and to use ephemeral short-term credentials. And, you know, it gets played out in very um, operational ways. And that's actually really exciting because then it has some teeth to it. You know, I think there are a lot of ways that we see these kinds of urges to mature um, translate into actually more interesting, more um, healthy ecosystems of innovation and security being woven together. When you're thinking about, again, broad stuff, but, but when you're thinking about securing identity, particularly right now when so many people are, are working from home still, how do you think about your, your visibility and, and understanding where your information is? I'll, I'll start with you, Merritt, and then, then go to you, Greg. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, COVID prompted the growing up that we all were due for, um, which was to say that like, so for example, the term zero trust, right? It's not the idea that um, this notebook is zero trust because nothing comes in or out. The idea is that you reduce possibly down to zero, the relevance of your position in the network so that you don't just take perimeter-based uh, trust models. And, but I think the point is that you there is some value to some of those traditional perimeters, whether it's a VPN or a VPC, to reduce that signal to noise, and that they are ideally um, not only coupled by, but sort of complemented and augmented and aware of those fine-grained identity-centric permissions. Um, so an example of that might be a VPC endpoint, where you've got both the perimeter and the fine-grained permissions woven in as a, a policy-based identity um, perimeter. And I think that there is actually a lot of beauty here that it um, forced us to uh, accommodate folks, for example, who might have required remote work because of family or um, disability or other uh, considerations. You know, in a lot of ways, I think we needed to move beyond, you know, the perimeter is dead long with the perimeter, right? Um, but we needed to move beyond into this more nuanced or more mature model. And I think that COVID has been an enabler for that in the sense that it has forced enterprises to reckon with it. Um, and that may require them to then just like move beyond what had been their more traditional manual identity processes. Yeah, I think I think that's great. I, and it really has forced us to, you know, take a step back. I mean, there's, you know, there are, there are places uh, in our enterprise where it is going to be easy. You know, it, it just makes absolute complete sense. Um, but it's also helped us to discover areas where it may not be as easy and, and you know, around high value assets and around uh, industrial control systems and some of our plants and manufacturers and those kinds of things. And so uh, it really has helped us to, as we go through these, uh, these requirements to really take a hard look at, at our infrastructure and our environment and how each of these things fits. So, I, yeah, I think that's I think that's really good. And then it enables us to then go steady state, continue to improve in these areas, but take a much harder look uh, at how do we get at this, um, you know, in some of these harder areas around high performance computing is another one that, uh, that doesn't fit the normal 
mold of what you know traditional IT infrastructure. Greg Sisson, the Chief Information Security Officer at the Energy Department from this week's Cyber Week event with Merritt Baer of Amazon Web Services. You can find a link to the entire event in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. No matter where you listen to it, you can rate it and review it. And I ask you to do that this weekend if you haven't already. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. More on artificial intelligence in the Defense Department with Bob Work on Monday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.